Welcome to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. Here are your hosts, Alex Kingsbury and Danny Piper. Hi everyone, my name's Alex Kingsbury and this is the July episode of Printing Money. I'm here with my co-host, Danny Piper. Hello, Danny. Hey, Alex. Good to catch up with you again. And it's just us today, isn't it? It is. This is going to be an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? We're not going to talk about Stratus straight away, are we? No, no. Although there is big news on that front that came out today, but uh, let's get into the other stuff in the market. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I reckon we like, let's hit some M&A first, yeah? Then some uh, VC slash financings. And then if you're here just for the Stratasys thing, then just like, you know, fast forward to the end because uh, we're, we're tired of putting that one up front and letting them t- take center stage all the time. All right, M&A, M&A, what deals have we got uh, this month, Danny? Well, I think we're leading with the medical side again. That seems to be a, a popular trend picking up on some of our previous episodes with Conformis uh, getting acquired by Restore 3D. Yeah, it's interesting because we spoke about Restore 3D in our last episode. And as you said, you know, we're hitting on that medical thing again. And, um, you know, it wasn't so long ago, we we're talking about, you know, Zim Environment acquiring OSIS as well. So there seems to be a bit of activity happening in this space. Conformis is a, you know, total knee and hip replacement company, but very much in that specialized, personalized um, implants. Uh, side of things so uh, and then restore 3d as we mentioned I think it was in our last episode just recently did a raise for 12 million um, uh, through a crowdfunding approach so uh, you know conformist is a listed company though isn't it it is a listed company it's sort of a take private transaction and they're burning actually a fair amount of cash as we looked at them uh, prior to the call so yeah, they, and they've had sort of cyclical or sort of some, you know, when I look at the revenues, you know, they've had some one-off type revenues that, you know, we could chat about. I think you've been uncovering because, you know, they went from $100 million in revenues in 2021 to $59 million here in 2023. So I guess there's some things to unpack on the revenue side and what they're trying to do because, you know, they aren't profitable at this point. But I think there are some reasons why Restore and Conformist probably makes sense here. So what, let's talk about sort of what you learned on some of these one-off revenues in 2021 and 2022 that sort of inflated what their revenues look like. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, the thing with Conformus is, I mean, tell you what, first of all, if you were uh, in on their IPO, you'd be a real disappointed shareholder. Their share price has been absolutely plummeting ever since they listed um, which was up at around the $600 a share mark. And um, they were cl- hovering close to about a dollar before acquisition. So, you know, we've touched upon this before, um, this issue of if you're listed on the NY um, stock exchange, then if you're getting to that you know dollar mark or below a dollar, you're at risk of being delisted. So that's where Conformis was really sitting, sitting before this acquisition. They've been suffering a really sort of, I guess, as you mentioned, lumpy revenue stream. We we dug into that and we found that they they settled on a case with Medacta for infringement on their patents around that personalised implant space, um, and then had settled that in 2022, and so received a, a one-off lump sum payment. But you know, it was a it was a one-off lump sum of a of a single-digit million-dollar mark. 
Um, so not huge amounts of money really in the scheme of things. And for that, they were able to receive a royalty-free non-exclusive license. So Met, Met Actor were able to receive this you know, royalty-free non-exclusive license to the conformist um, IP. And uh, and they sort of have a history of doing this. Um, they obviously have, have some strong patents, um, conformists, because in 2020 they also uh, settled with Zimmer Biomet on a very similar case and received, again, a one-off payment. But, you know, I guess if that's the business model, I don't think it's probably a very good one. But having said that, you know, you've got to protect your IP. I think they've been probably a little distracted, uh, it's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of thing. It's it's hard. I think they probably got, uh, you know, wrapped up in a bunch of these IP disputes. But I think, you know, from a standpoint of the product overlap, right, I think that they are complementary in terms of what Restore is doing. So you've got hip and knee replacements from conformists, and then you got upper extremity, spine, and really foot and ankle. But really, it's really upper extremity and foot and ankle are predominantly where Restore is. So now all of a sudden, right, you have a product portfolio of customizable implants that's a little bit more broad in scope. If you can rationalize the company's, um, you know, one, take conformance and all the public reporting and costs associated with being a public company out of it, and then rationalizing the sales forces, I think that starts to put them on an interesting track. So I think, you know, that's that's where I, you know, you look at it and go, I think it looks like it's a complementary product portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, we like I said, we talked about how Zim Biomet acquired OSIS. Um, that do hip replacements. And it was it was very much a sort of similar transaction along the lines of it being able to add to the portfolio of where you're lacking capability. And, and, and it does seem to be that this area of personalised implants is now a little bit more of a hotly contested space. I, I think the other thing here to mention too is that um, Conformis is a Duke University-associated company, so is Restore3D. Uh, Restore also did uh, an acquisition, um, which we talked about in a prior episode, also of a Duke Uni um, company. So all, all sort of spin-outs of, of Duke Uni are associated with that ecosystem. Um, but there's definitely a sort of a centre of gravity starting to form. But i got to say, it's pretty hard to go up against those big um, you know, med tech companies like your Strikers and Zimmers. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, you know, coming from common origin, sounds like they're all spins out, you know, spin outs of Duke. And then I think, you know, the fact that they've got the overlap in terms of products, so are the, you know, are expanding, you know, they're complementary. And it is interesting, by the way, that Conformis is hitting hips and that's that's where Asus was. So their goal, it sounds like they're moving their sales uh, direction into the ambulatory you know, surgical centers of the ASCs rather than hospitals. And that's just because there's been some changes in the Medicare reimbursement schemes that allow for uh, outpatient surgeries for some of these uh, hip replacements and now knee replacement surgeries. So it, it starts to shift the game out of hospitals into ASCs, which I think favors 3D printing. It gives you more opportunity to sell in. Selling into hospitals is hard. They're big systems, um, largely locked up by the big players. So it, it'll be interesting for everyone to see how this one sort of plays out. I think, you know, the biggest issue is, are they going to have enough cash at Restore 3D and Conformist post-closing to turn the corner on profitability? Yeah, exactly. All right, shall we move on? The next one's CADS Additive. Um, Hexagon, Hexagon acquired the Austrian-based CADS Additive for an undisclosed sum. Um, and a uh, thing to mention here is CADS Additive was already a pretty close partner of Hexagon's. They were part of the Nexus workflow um, and so were already being used in that Hexagon ecosystem. 
um, and obviously already had a relationship going. Yeah, I think, you know, this is sort of comes on the heels of Hexagon having done a big investment. Uh, if we all looked at episode one, where we had, um, you know, talked about sort of the divergent 3D, $100 million investment, Hexagon continues to try to find ways to integrate more capability in their you know, advanced discrete manufacturing portfolio of products. And I think this is complementary, sort of is, you know, aligning themselves to further integrating to AM? I mean, they had, um, uh, you know, quite a while back, a number of years back, uh, Hexagon acquired Simifact. Simifact is a simulation tool for AM. Um, it, it's it's really well regarded, I have to say, and um, and it's it's very well used. Uh, they've, Hexagon had this strategy, you know, with this Nexus platform where they wanted to create this open and flexible AM ecosystem. And so they invited a whole heap of partners into that ecosystem um, with the idea that, you know, more of us are going to be using additive and to industrialize 3D printing. But the CAD additive software, I mean, it's basically build prep software. Um, They do supports, you know, support placement, slicing, but also do some work around sensor monitoring um, and but also part orientation. And so it works really well with the Simufact capability um, being the simulation software because um, as a lot of us know that, you know, when you're thinking about part placement on, on a, and by the way, this is all, you know, powder bed um, fusion uh, related. So if you're thinking about where to put a part and how to support it, being able to simulate that build is super important because you can more easily detect, you know, potential build failures. So, you know, the, the acquisition, you know, obviously they're invited into the ecosystem because they made a heck of a lot of sense with Simufact as a, as a complementary product. And now the acquisition just confirms that. The only thing that to relate, and you hit on it, is it's really exclusively scoped uh, to the laser powder bed fusion market. So it's not comprehensive hitting all the uh, portfolios of additive, but it's obviously a very important one for the aerospace defense community. And I think that's why that sensor monitoring piece is in there too, is sort of if you can start to have quality and checks on your builds so it's you can simulate it, but then now you can match to make sure your sensors after you've done the manufacturing sort of, we're all operating within the parameters that you set forth in your simulation to help with that digital twin and quality control system. So yeah, uh, yeah. a couple of buzzwords that, in there. Yeah, I think, I think it, what they've got or where they're heading is um, to be somewhat of a competitor to, you know, materialize, right? So trying to just do that end-to-end software, you know, in the Hexagon ecosystem. Um, And it will be interesting, I think, to see how they continue to build that out because Hexagon's pretty interested in the DED space as well. Um, as we mentioned, this is, you know, part of our fusion software. So, you know, what what is there around in the DED space in terms of software and, uh, and, and flow, you know, build flow that they could possibly add? I think that they're definitely still open to further acquisitions down the line. Um, but at the moment, um, from their current ecosystem that they've got, there doesn't seem to be too many other options and it, it, on, on the software side anyway. Um, and there's always been a lot made of Hexagon and how much money they have and how willing they are to invest in AM because they definitely seem fairly willing, but are pretty choosy about the investments and the the acquisitions that they make. Yep, I totally agree on that one. So it's good to see that they're staying active and two deals now in the last couple, uh, say six months for them is, is positive for the uh, 3D printing industry. 
So that those are our two acquisitions that we had is so far. Like I said, we're going to save the merger talk um, and the public markets for for later. Um, we'll move into investments VC. Um, I thought it might be interesting though, Danny. Do you want to just for two secs just give the audience a little recap on the difference between M and A and and an investment? Yeah, I mean, these are not. So when I think about M and A, it's largely control investing. So with private equity or with strategic buyers, strategics usually buy one hundred percent of a company. You know, and with private equity, it's a controlling interest of some sort. So that's sort of where I look at um, the, you know, the difference. And, you know, when you look at minority investments, these are VCs, they're minority investors, they're not taking controlling positions. So that's that's how I delineate it. Now, sometimes you're going to see in some of these uh, investments, even though if they are strategic, they can do some non-control investing. We might have one of those in our mix this time around. So we can sort of expand on it as we get closer on yeah. some of these transactions. On investments, what we've seen is Lightforce. So if you haven't heard about Lightforce before, they do um, dental braces, orthodontic braces, and they custom 3D print um, the little brackets that go on your teeth out of a, a ceramic. They are pretty flush with cash, honestly. Like they're, they're doing really well and they're raising um, they raised an estimated $83 million in the Series D venture funding from Ali Bridge Group, um, Amiga Venture Partners, and other undisclosed investors uh, just recently in June this year. Um, puts their pre-money valuation at $317 million. I mean, th- these kinds of dollars are not the sort of dollars that we're necessarily used to talking about, particularly in a Series D, particularly in 2023, right, Danny? Yeah, no, it's great to see, uh, you know, larger deals and growth equity rounds getting done. Let's sort of look at the history of the company from a financing standpoint. We can then talk sort of about the market. I mean, the company itself started back in 2016. They were part of an accelerator, the Mass Challenge. They raised, you know, like six and a half million dollars in a couple of small rounds in 2017 and 2018. Got their first big round done in September 2020 at 13, almost 14 million dollars at a 30 million dollar pre-money. A year later in November 2021, they raised 50 million dollars on 175 million pre. So two years later, you're looking at a pretty good step up in valuation from a $225 million post in that last round to a pre-money of 317 and raising 83. So investors must see the progress is working here. So I think from that standpoint, you know, it's it's a growth equity round. So later stage round for sure. So there's not, this isn't, you know, funding that initial, you know, technology that hasn't really found a market yet. What's What's interesting to me is that, you know, and all of the hype and 3D printing's all been around printing aligners. And now you have this company printing braces. And yeah. look, I, you know, aligners just don't work for everything in the market. So I think there's a, the idea that you can customize the actual bracket that goes onto a tooth. Um, so it's, you know, there's a market for it and they're, they're building that out uh, based on sort of what we're seeing here with both software and a hardware solution. I thought I thought this was a really cool one actually because um, as you mentioned, there's been so much talk about aligners, um, but but aligners aren't uh, necessarily suitable for that sort of probably more hardcore orthodontic uh, work sometimes that that customers need. And being able to personalize the brackets, um, as I understand it, does mean that you get a much uh, better result a lot quicker. And I guess this kind of raises the point, or at least a little bit of speculation around you know would they be a potential. Um, you know, target for acquisition 
not necessarily now, but but a little bit further down the track by one of those bigger companies like, you know, Align, for example. Um, and I think they've got, you know, one of their execs is X Align. Um, so it, it does look pretty cozy. It's, it seems like a, a great company that is, yeah, Series D for 83 million of Series D. Uh, they certainly haven't needed to take a down round as well um, on this raise. So so it's really um, a great result for them and also, also confirms the fact that dental is a very mature market in the 3D printing space. I mean, to, to have launched in 2016 with an accelerator and have a fully FDA approved product by 2019, that's pretty exceptional. Um, it's it's very quick in in its pace and development pace as far as you know a, a medical product is concerned. So yeah, well done to them. Well, it's just increasing the penetration of additive into the dental market and orthodontics. I'd be really interested to learn more. And I just don't we don't get the visibility from what we're seeing on the printer itself. I think that's something that it'd be curious to see if this is going to be distributed through labs or are they going to get to the point of care with orthodontists so that uh, they can build these models. Don't know how that's working today, but I think it'd be something that I'd love to, to learn more about as we uh, watch watch them kind of develop and scale. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I'd love to know. What, I'd love to know what printer there is that they're using. I think that I suspect what they're going to do is um, be able to sell like a printer and a. a they've got a software solution, um, so being able to sell that all as a sort of a turnkey package to these orthodontic labs that are scattered around the globe. I, I suspect that that's going to be their business model. It's probably not going to go down the track of um, that centralized production, but we shall see. Well, labs is one, but I think, you know, getting things to the point of care, whether it's in dentistry where we're inserting 3D printed products into those offices or whether we get into the orthodontist office, that would be, you know, depending on the printer and the capability, if it doesn't need, you know, externally supplied gases and other things, the complexity, if they can bring that software down to sort of a an expert level software that, you know, the average text can run inside of these offices. That's that's where I think this market starts to get interesting as a whole. I mean, it's a, it's great that they could also go to to the labs that are centralized and service lots of orthodontists. But I think three uh, D printing with a you know decentralized manufacturing has a capability. If these are smaller machines and can be tailored right, can start to penetrate downstream all the way to the orthodontist. So, don't know where they fit in that one today, but that would be something to to watch for. Mm, yeah. And I mean, I think it's fair to say, too, that that whole industry has been pretty disrupted over probably the last 10 years, um, particularly with 3D printing. Um, yeah, very cool to see. All right, let's move on. Uh, Centavia. Centavia received a strategic undisclosed investment from Lockheed Martin in a direct equity deal um, just recently. Centavia, uh, you know, you and I, Danny, are familiar with them. They're a solutions provider for the aerospace, defence and space sectors. Um, they are purely 3D printing um, uh, of, of a company, but uh, started in materials testing, actually. So they've got a really decent materials testing um, lab and facility, moved into the, the actual printing side of things, but now have a real specialty or have sort of honed their specialty in being able to provide thermodyna- thermodynamic equipment. So, you know, if you think about it, heat exchanges and, um, and the like. Go ahead, Danny. Yeah, I mean, is certainly, you know, one of the most highly regarded 3D printing service bureaus. And, you know, Brian Neff's done an incredible job building out a capability there, but it's come at a very high cost. And I think um, it's noted that there's been some layoffs recently at Centavia. 
And this was a transaction that was done where an investment bank was representing uh, Centivia. They had RBC that ran a process on the company. So what we don't understand uh, from the public disclosure right now is that uh, the scope of the investment, that's why we categorized it here as an investment rather than an acquisition, doesn't fully explain the scope of it. Uh, Lockheed has been an investor in, in many transactions. We've talked about Fortify 3D uh, in our prior episodes. Um, and I've worked with them in the past on companies like Nuvotronics historically. So, you know, they tend to either invest to protect a program or enable a program. I'd say it's probably the better way to do that. Um, so there's, and I know Centavia has been on the front end of doing a lot of very interesting development work with uh, strategic companies. So we don't know if this is really more of a venture related deal to, to kind of help out a capability or if this is something a little bit larger in scope. Um, something tells me because of the fact that RBC's involvement, this is a little bit larger in scope than probably the traditional venture deal that they did. But unfortunately, we don't get visibility into that right now. Well, I think a little bit of a hint there is the fact that it's Lockheed Martin Corporation that were the investor and it wasn't Lockheed Martin Ventures. Um, so we talked about Lockheed Martin Ventures uh, with their strategic investment in Fortify 3D in the last episode. Um, but you know, for whatever reason, the terms of the deal perhaps didn't meet the, um, you know, the, what, what Lockheed Martin Ventures would typically invest in. And as you say, we it's, it's undisclosed. And so we don't exactly know how to categorize this. But uh, no, I mean, nevertheless, you know, Centavia remains Centavia and Lockheed Martin remains uh, an investor. So, yeah, there, there is a um, an, an interesting dynamic happening in this space. As, as you mentioned, Danny, you've, you've had some experience with some of these providers before, but it's it's really important to note here, it's, it's no longer okay or good enough to just have a couple of machines and say, you know, yeah, I do 3D printing. Um, you need to have... Um, you need to have scale and you also need to have a pretty deep capability in design um, and product development materials testing as well. No, agreed. I, I think that's just where, you know, and the whole market was converging when Centavia and Morph3D and, and Kodama and I3D all started. You know, they, they sort of the original kind of companies in the space, it was all development work. And now it's starting to shift into production level work that design capability sort of gets you a seat at the table for some of the big customers. But now the customers are starting to get smarter on their design capabilities and they need sophisticated, large uh, suppliers that have quality control systems. And Centavia's invested heavily into that. And I can say the same thing. It's fair to say for Encodema and Morph and I3D and some of the others, we're, we're starting to see a few more um, that are kind of coming on that list. So yeah, the, the market needs really qualified suppliers. And I think that's why Lockheed is involved in this transaction to maintain a, a very good qualified supplier for them on their programs. Yeah. And I should note too, that uh, Centavia and Lockheed Martin were part of the AM Forward um, announcement, like the AM Forward initiative announcement. So that was at the White House. Um, and there was this announcement as part of AM4. So AM4, if you don't know, is is a, a program run run in the inside of the US, and which was all about looking at supply chains and trying to secure supply chains within um, the US. And in particular, it's about getting primes to work with, to work uh, more uh, with US based SMEs. And so Lockheed Martin and this Lockheed Martin Centavia agreement was put up as a bit of an example of what AM Forward is about. Uh, so there is already some strategic interest there, I guess, you know, just despite 
not not despite, but in addition to the work that they're already doing together, which is you know Centavia currently services um, a couple of the the Lockheed programs. Um, right. So yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of uh, I guess political will behind um, these kinds of um, collaborations and cooperations. Well, I, I, the only thing I add here is, I mean, don't forget more 3D when they had their first two rounds included uh, Boeing as part of it, and it's a lot of the the larger companies, they still need robust suppliers in this space. And the problem is uh, there's so many big companies that just aren't set up. All the private equity backed suppliers in the world are not set up largely. Uh, I'll throw American Industrial Partners as a separate category. They're not largely, you know, they're not set up because they don't want to make the investment into additive because it requires a bunch of machines. So the best technically qualified suppliers are still Centavia and Kodama, Morphrite, these these yeah, smaller exactly. and I3D. And the problem is these big supply chains and these big companies come in and they go, oh, we want to work with big companies now that we have a production program, go put in 20 machines somewhere. And that's the problem. The best companies got to do this are these companies and they they need the investment to scale. And, and that's where there really isn't investment dollars from a, a lot of the community because they look at these and don't understand how hard it was to get here. So, uh, you know, I think there's going to be more on the manufacturing side of this and the scaling of service bureaus over the next few months that we're going to hear more about on, on additional transactions. So uh, because the market's coming, it's starting to develop. And I think it's uh, it's enabling other parties to come in. So sounds like, you know, something, Danny. <laughs> uh, there's a few things going on. So uh, it's an interesting space. <laughs> Say no more. We'll save it for a future episode. OK. <laughs> Moving on, uh, we have Albert Invent. Uh, they have raised $7.5 million in a seed round. Uh, we thought this was really interesting to include because $7.5 million for a seed round is uh, pretty impressive. It was led by Index Ventures and uh, the participating investors were Homebrew and F Prime. They're essentially Albert Invent is a materials development R&D platform. They uh, use our favorite keyword at the moment, which is AI uh, and machine learning. Um, the idea being that they have this database of like over 50,000 chemicals and they can simulate experiments and so cut down on experimental time um, when you're looking at developing new materials. Um, the, the, the 3D printing overlay here is that two of their um, customers are Henkel and also 3D Systems. So, you know, I'm not sure the extent of those, those partnerships, but, uh, you know, nevertheless, they're two really good partners to have on your books. They seem to be very much a sort of polymers-based um, materials R&D platform. And, uh, you know, and both those companies are already, you know, uh, are obviously very active in the in the polymer space and also in um, qualifying new materials and developing new materials. So, yeah, yeah. They, they do seem to be probably a little bit more, you know, just looking at the investors, this is a little bit more of a, you know, biosciences type, you know, driven investment. Yeah, so Nick... Talkin, who's the co-founder here, came out of Henkel. Um, but looking at some of the investors, first of all, I mean, kudos to them for getting a seven and a half million dollar deal done on a material yeah. science AI platform, because material science is probably the hardest of the hard in terms of venture capital. It's just it's the longest cycle time from start to real revenues. Um, but they're an AI and they're a services business, so it's a little bit different. Uh, one of the investors, F Prime, does a lot in the health tech space. And so, and I think that's where you can see a lot of these, like the database of the 50,000 chemicals. Is this going to have pharma applications? Is this going to have others? I think this is broader than 3D printing, but I think if you can start to understand sort of 
new formulations, materials, uh, new capabilities. Uh, it's exciting um, from that standpoint. Again, it's it's broader than 3D printing, but I think it's, you know, it's unusual to see early stage, you know, first rounds of capitals into some of these kind of chemical, specialty chemical companies getting funded. And by the way, without really the strategic investors here, right? I think that's that's what's sort of uh, interesting about it. Mm, yeah, that's true. Although, I mean, you know, Index Ventures, Homebrew, F-Prime, like, and, and I should mention too, Albert Invent, it's based in Oakland. Um, and so you, you can kind of imagine that they're probably surrounded by a whole heap of um good venture capital companies. But two of those, one was an asset manager out of New York and the other one was based out of London. So that's that's what sort of makes me kind of scratch my head here. And the one thing I can say is a, a real nice thing about the polymer side of the world is almost all the major polymer companies have direct investing venture arms, Solve, Avonic, you know, the old DSM now, you know, they, you know, then it went to Covestro, everybody else, they had their direct investment arm. Um, you know, Henkel as well has a direct investing capability. And then most of them also co-invest into some funds that are, you know, the, if you look at the Emerald Ventures and Pangea Ventures of the world. So those are all material science back types of, of CBCs. None of those are here. That's why it's sort of interesting to me that, um, you know, they have a, a fresh group of investors that aren't the usual suspects here. Yeah, maybe that's because they said, hey, we do AI. <laughs> I, no, I, I think that I think that helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think in general, though, like the um, materials development for anything SLA, DLP, um, you know, on that side of things, that's experiencing a real boom at the moment. And, you know, the materials development on on that in that side of 3D printing um, has been very key to the increased adoption of, of um, you know, that that those technologies. So having an investment in something that, you know, is an R&D platform makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of hard work that goes into developing um, those materials. And uh, and if you can, I mean, I'm always a little sceptical, I have to say, of anything that says we're going to simulate your experiments and just do all your R&D for you. Um, but, but look, these types of tools are really good to be able to use in addition to um, your actual lab work. Um, speaking of materials, Chromatic 3D, uh, Danny, you've had a little bit to do with them, haven't you? Uh, well, not directly. I, you know, I'd say, you know, I'll, I'll be careful here. I'm sure I've signed NDAs. Cora um, is, I think, doing a great job running the company. They just completed an oversubscribed round of 3.12 million. They didn't disclose the investors, but I think they have some, you know, well-known investors in the company. Actually, this was one DSM invested in before they went and became Covestro and others. Um, Jordan Noon, from who was a fairly well-known SpaceX employee who started Relativity Space, who's now running a venture firm, Embedded Ventures, invested in the last round as well. So, um, one thing I can say is that I've what I've seen in the company is they're expanding the sort of the portfolio of applications that they're addressing now. So they do elastomeric parts. It's a two-part 3D printing system. So they have some unique space of materials that nobody else is really printing on. And just the application space, the speed, where the printer's going is uh, seems like it's hitting on all cylinders. When I saw some of the samples that Cora had at Rapid, I was I was impressed. And I think that's why that round was oversubscribed. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Um, and, you know, and I think uh, going back to the whole materials element, it's a materials driven company. And so the the real thesis here behind the company is that working working on the materials development side is is what helps you print better better parts 
Um, so it is a materials and technology company, but um, as you mentioned, elastomeric parts, which is not an area a lot of people are, uh, you know, uh, investing in, or I would say doing that well. So if you think about, you know, elastomers, think like, you know, rubber gas- gaskets, for example. Um, and and if you think about what it's re- what's required to produce those types of parts, there's a heck of a lot of waste. And and so being able to print directly um, is definitely a win. And these are the kinds of materials that you just you you really can't just work with uh, standard printers and um, and avoid the fact that you have a significant materials challenge there. Exactly. Moving on, we have post process small uh, little round for them. 1.4 million that they raised uh, last month. They did raise a Series B of 20 million in 2019. So um, this is just, uh, no, what is it, a little bit to top up the pot? Yeah, this is, uh, I'm guessing, is a bridge round. Um, you know, I think uh, last time I talked to Jeff Mize, was at Rapid, and, uh, you know, I think they are, you know, doing the right things uh, post-process. I mean, this, this is one that I, I would put into the idea that I would love to have a deeper conversation on post-processing on a future episode because there's yeah. a couple companies in this space. Post, yeah, I, I think post-process is one of them that are doing very interesting things. And I think in the sense of 3D printing, this, this segment of the market gets overlooked a little bit. But if everybody looks at the cost of a part, post-processing is a significant portion of it. So, uh, you know, I know everybody gets focused on the sexy 3D printer side of the world, but uh, kudos to Jeff and team for uh, for getting their bridge round down here. And, uh, you know, I expect to, to see more from them in the future. Yeah, I think you're right. There, there um, There's a few other players in this space. Um, but having said that, there's more than enough market for them to go around, you know. And the post-processing side of things, it's it's definitely difficult and it's also quite hard to be a solution to everyone. I did note that post-process, um, you know, they've they really made their start in the polymers side but also have moved into metals um, and you've got some other providers in the metals space. But it, it, it's also very much an underserved market as well. Um, so despite the fact that you do have some pretty stiff competition and some really strong companies in post-processing, honestly, there's probably not enough. So, you know, we all we all like to see post-processing companies do well, I think, because uh, we know that they are so essential for, you know, producing good 3D printed products. They definitely have an essential place in the uh, the tech stack for getting a, a part to market. Hey, the next one is AIM3D. Uh, they raised an undisclosed amount of venture funding from, um, how are we going to say this, going to test my German high-tech Gründerfonds. Um, and HCG Group in July 2023. They have a pallet-based 3D printer. Um, and we've talked about pallet-based 3D printing before on prior episodes where basically you can use a pallet feedstock instead of a wire, instead of a powder, um, you know, a filament. And it's a much cheaper way of, um, of 3D printing and you have access to a, lot, uh, a much broader suite of materials if you can go direct from pallet to 3D printing. Um, so that's what I think is interesting here about this and not the first company that's got a pallet-based, you know, extrusion 3D printing system that is is attracting funding at the moment. little shout-out there to um, H- HZG Group, of course, uh, because that is uh, Frank and Kirsten Herzog, um, ex-co-founders of Concept Laser. Yeah, no, I think that um, you've, you've got very prominent 3D printing investors in HCG here. So that's that's one thing. The From what we can see that, and I, I agree, I think the more things are going pellet-based is better. It just brings a lot of the cost down, opens up the material space. 
They claim to have capabilities into you know, polymers, which makes total sense, and then steels, ceramics. And, and I think when you start to get in these other categories, when we were digging in, it looks like they're going to be printing all green parts that'll get centered later. You know, it sounds like this was, uh, you know, it wasn't their first round. They had raised almost $4 million in prior rounds. So this is sort of the, the next level scaling round for the company. So it's... Um, it's not clear on how much was raised to scale it, but uh, this was probably well beyond the technical demonstration phase of the company. And hopefully they're moving into something a little bit more quickly. And they obviously have uh, a great investor in HCG. Yeah, it did surprise me a little bit to see that their materials portfolio was so broad. Um, so as you mentioned, they do polymers, which which completely makes sense for this sort of pallet-based uh, system, but also steels and non-ferrous metals, you know, ceramics and um, refractories. So that's quite a lot of capability to cover for an early stage company, um, and 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 particularly going making that switch from um, also offering metals in addition to polymers. Um, you're then looking at you know we need furnaces and we need sintering recipes and you know the development work is not insubstantial. Um, I'm I'm kind of amazed honestly that they've been able to get to that you know level or, or phase of capability. Um, with such a small amount of money, honestly. But I guess if it were me, I'd, I'd probably be sticking with just making sure I could do polymers really well. Uh, I think working into metals is pretty challenging, but good luck to them. Agreed. Phone and Tech is the next one. Uh, they raised uh, 2.3 million euros with uh, a deal led by thematic technology transfer. Now, Phonantech does um, 3D printing of microelectronics, but the thing I like about them is that they've come out of uh, the, the Netherlands, out of that Eindhoven precinct, um, innovation precinct. So we talked about this, I think, with Arno. Um, he mentioned uh, in his intro that that was uh, visiting that Eindhoven precinct was one of the big inspirations for him. Um, and I have to say, I, I, I feel it very in a very similar way. Uh, I've not been able to visit that precinct, but I did hear uh, a speech of one of the directors of that Eindhoven precinct, and it was just absolutely fascinating, the, the whole history there with Philips. But um, anyway, back on phone and tech, they, they, they've raised this. They, there was an undisclosed amount of debt as well provided by Rabobank Group, and there was five other investors in the round. Um, makes me think of, you know, 3D printing electronics because I feel like every episode we're at least talking about, you know, at, at least one of these types of companies, right? Yeah, well, let's just take Nano Dimension out of that. And there's there's always going to be somebody else. I think what we have at Elephant Tech. Elephant uh, Tech that we talked about last episode, yeah. yeah. And yeah. and there's there's quite a few others that have addressed this market. It sort of is the harder part of the industry that uh, there's groups that have really tried to to knock it down. And you know, we've got IOTech at Israel doing some very interesting multi-material 3D printing focused on that. We talked about Elephant Tech. There's you know the one that sort of gets brought up from time to time that uh, probably was the first one uh, is Optimec with their you know ability to print antennas and uh, with conductive silvers and their uh, jetting technology. So mm, hard space, it, it, it is a hard space, and, and you know I think given the uh, the roots of where they're coming out of in Eindhoven, they might have the right DNA for it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how the company matures. It's a huge market. I think when they start to address it, you know the hard part is you have to have it ready for scale because it's hard to go into electronics on sort of a, a prototyping type of an approach. You really have to have a technology that scales. All right. So um, one that we picked up to here was uh, Agile Space, the next one. And they raised $13.85 through a combination of C2 and three funding. 
um, in a deal led by Caruso Ventures uh, in June. And uh, Agile Space, they do um, propulsion systems, right? Um, and we thought we were, would mention them because they have a pretty strong 3D printing capability. And, you know, while they're a space company, definitely use, use 3D printing, as we've talked about in, in prior episodes, the application space now is going to become you know, increasingly important or is increasingly important and, and um, space is a really big sector as a user of 3D printing technology. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm rooting for them when you go on the website. Obviously, you see all the 3D printed. You can just see the rocket engines. And there's also the really the thruster side of the market for satellites. And I think that's a, a, you know, a big segment to think about. Um, so the, the, when I sort of look at the, the types of thrusters they're doing on the satellite side, they're hydrazine thrusters. There's a couple competitors in the market. Arian's been in this market for a long time in Europe. You have Aerojet Rocketdyne as well. Uh, who also has, you know, very capable 3D printing capabilities. So those are the traditional ones. But this this thruster market has a number of startups that have been funded. Uh, and the ones I think about, the, the big two in the United States that uh, got funded really back in 2016 were Axion and Phase 4. Axion, uh, they've raised $42 million for their ionic propulsion system. Phase 4 has already raised $58 million in their electric propulsion Two other startups, Thrust Me out of France, uh, I think they were doing electric propulsion as well, raised almost $5 million, and Impulsion out of Austria has raised 7.6. So it's this idea of expanding the capability of satellites, giving them more delta V, which is sort of the ability to maneuver. Delta V is sort of a term you measure in kilometers. It's the ability to give a satellite more range or ability to change orbits or maintain orbits for station keeping capabilities is actually a really great capability. It, it enables lots of uh, either better uh, management of the satellite to reduce costs because you can use more fuel up there. It's just so expensive to move it up there, right? That's that's the, the big rub. And I think that's why you're seeing electric and ion-based uh, propulsion systems replacing some of these old hydrazine tanks that, um, that, that are out there today, but it's sort of tried and true. Looks like a capable team. They started in Colorado back, uh, looks like 2018 out of an accelerator program in Southwest Colorado with a huge, you know, Space Force presence in Colorado. You know, you've got a very good cohort of people that probably evaluated it and they got their first round of funding in April of 2020. They'll figure that timing uh, right as COVID hit. So, but they raised 3.4 million. Probably couldn't do much with it for the first year. And then uh, it really seems like they've hit their uh, their stride. So this is sort of a big round for them at close to $14 million. Yeah. And I mean, shout out to Lockheed Martin Ventures, who are an investor, uh, who we've already mentioned, obviously. Wow, they keep coming up. Yeah. Hey, the next one is Replique. Uh, they raised an undisclosed amount of seed funding um, in a deal led by STS Ventures. And uh, we also had a couple of other investors participate. Um, they do like a an on-demand manufacturing platform. So if you think about, you know, we, we discussed Makerverse in a prior episode, kind of similar idea is that, you know, you up, upload your part, get a quote, and then uh, send it out to some manufacturers who are part of their, you know, ecosystem. Uh, the thing that I can see here as being a bit of a point of difference is that they offer that on an encrypted basis. So the idea being that it should be more secure. Uh, when you're transferring these files and so on, um, it's a it's a pretty active space, though, isn't it, Danny? This um, on-demand manufacturing platform. 
Yeah, there's lots of platforms that are out there. Uh, we've talked, you know, previously, we've got Makerverse on the last episode. We had a uh, company, Voxel, that was, you know, creating generative AI designs. You've got a number of players that hit different pieces of this, whether they have the whole platform or not. I think Assembrix is always a company I bring up to watch on sort of the encryption side of it, on laser powder bed fusion. You know, on the parts inventory side, Castor out of Israel is doing a lot on sort of the onboarding of customers for all their you know inventory parts, which is really similar to what uh, Replique is doing. So it's um, it's a necessary space. We do need ways for companies to load up inventories, manage you know those inventories in a better way to take and take advantage and leverage 3D printing. Um, but very crowded for sure. All right, moving on, we have some news from Saku. So we, you know, hit that rewind button, Danny. We discussed Saku in a prior episode where we announced that they were, well, we covered the fact that they'd announced that they were going to do a, um, a SPAC with a Plum Acquisition Corp. And um, we have some latest news on that. What is that, Danny? That is not going through. Plum Acquisition Corp is they received a termination notice from Saku and Plum is going to be dissolving the fund. They usually have a two year life cycle on a SPAC to get a deal done. They're not going to get their deal done and will be dissolving. So and uh, got a note from Robert uh, Bagari, the CEO of, um, of Saku and said, unfortunately, they had to send that termination notice. So we saw that in the news. Um, I don't have anything else to elaborate on it from that standpoint, but um, it just didn't look like they were going to get that transaction completed. I mean, I, I think we covered um, it at the time. I, I thought it was um, incredibly optimistic to be doing that kind of a deal. Do, you know, doing in a the, SPAC deal in 2023 wow, has got to be yeah, hard. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so and, and just to cover off on Saku, it's a it's sort of 3D printing batteries um, type idea. And I, I think that yeah, that's, that's going to be a challenging, that's very challenging to do. Huge amounts of capital investment needed. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Into the public markets. Um, so Shapeways had an announcement that they're going to be doing a reverse stock split one for eight. Um, so maybe just to cover off on what a reverse stock split is, because um, I didn't mention it before, but this is actually what Conformus did prior to the the um, uh, acquisition by Restore3D. Um, and it's also something that Mark Forge has been talking about doing because they've been hitting below a dollar on the New York Stock Exchange so the idea of a reverse um, stock split is basically that you just consolidate your amount of shares. So your market cap doesn't change, but if you're a shareholder and on a reverse stock split of one for eight, if you own eight shares, you now own one. Um, so it's uh, sort of increasing the amount of the share, like your dollars per share, but it means that you essentially your your value in in uh, in Shapeways remains unchanged is the idea. So it's a it's a little bit of a financial engineering trick that companies will use, listed companies will use to artificially uh, bump up their share price um, in order to avoid a delisting. Yeah, it solves the symptom of the problem. The share price, you know, when it falls below a dollar, it's there for a reason. So you can take your eight shares at a dollar. So you're eight dollars and now you have one share for eight dollars and you solve the problem, right? We're no longer, you know, falling below the, the threshold because you have a fewer number of shares. The, the real issue is what Shapeway is going to do now that they solve the problem. They're not threatened to get delisted, but they're just sitting around that 30 to 31, 32 million dollars in revenues. And they've been sitting there for the last, you know, four or so years. So 
how do you grow the company so that the value is derived from the increasing value of the company, not from a fewer number of shares? Yeah, that's yeah. that's sort of. I mean, so they 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 solved one problem right on the on the financial engineering side of it, but I think they really need to get focused on how they're going to fit in the market and scale the company. That's that's the next phase for them. Yeah, their their revenues have been essentially flat, right? Um, it hasn't been necessarily uh, a great couple of years for Shapeways. Um, I did note that they had just very recently a big announcement with a, an auto maker where they got a, a sort of a main contractor. I think this is where things are going for these types of companies where they just need to have like some really big key customers. Um, it's no longer good enough to just have lots of like random individuals say, hey, print me this little, I don't know, caricature or whatever. It's That's not how you're going to make your money. Yeah. And this is but really that, how a company like Shapeway started. But that's that's exactly, it's a, it's a really a business model shift of being a production-oriented contract manufacturer rather than a prototyping shop. And yeah. I think it's just, you know, the quality control systems, how you address for it, right? They're just different. And so you, to pivot the company, right, longer term, they just, they have a little bit different operating models. So even though they all seem the same, I just think that the underlying fundamentals of how you sell and what kind of procedures and processes you have in place make the difference. All right. Um, on to Stratasys. So, um, so quite a bit has happened even since our last episode, of course. But 3D Systems have, have made some offers. Nano has made some offers. Um, and where it's landed is uh, 3D Systems has made an offer which equates to $24 a share for Stratasys. Um, Nano has come and basically matched that, but under different terms, of course. Um, but the very latest news is that um, Stratasys have turned around now and said that they will seriously consider it um, because, and I'm going to quote, re- can reasonably be expected to result in a superior proposal from 3D Systems. So that really sounds a lot like this is all kind of coming to, I wouldn't say an end because I wouldn't want to be too hopeful, but um, it does sound like things are getting now down to the pointy end. And it looks to me like a Stratasys 3D Systems merger is increasingly likely. Okay. Oof. I'm going to say one. I don't think we're coming to an end of anything. Um, oh, come on, Danny. In, 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 the, in, in the investment banking world, no deal is done until that check clears. Um, and so- hey, It was delivered in escrow, though. The, the 3D Systems deal is, is, is so, like signed, sealed, delivered. All Stratasys need to do is sign on the dotted line and they're going to pay the- Pay the fees out to Desktop Metal for cancelling the merger. So, so then, but then we would have just said the Desktop Metal was deal sort of the, the last time we talked. Oh, that, that deal's already signed, right? And so, so this saga is going to unfold. So, I think, first of all, I think that technically the 3D systems offer is lower than the Nano offer. The Nano offers at $24 a share. I think what this is technically, it's you get cash at seven fifty a share plus the combined entity of Stratasys will get forty four percent ownership into to three D systems. So two things have to happen here. So one, there is this open tender offer still sitting around with Nano Dimension, and today I woke up this morning before this podcast, and Stratasys has put out a a piece on why the their investors, their shareholders should not take the, the partial tender offer. So here's the five reasons they mentioned. One, it's a partial tender offer, which means they'll have as little as 40% of the shares purchased. Two, the partial tender offer implies a blended value of $15 to $19 a share or less, uh, assuming full participation on offer. So they're saying that, you know, 
given that your SSYS shares, remaining shares may trade at heavily discounted as nano as, as a nano controlled company, that could be nine to fifteen dollars a share or even less. So they're really beating up uh, the the nano controlled company on point two, point three. <laughs> Nano Dimension has destroyed significant value, trades at a negative firm value. Yoaf Stern cannot be trusted and has made misrepresentations and is not qualified to manage Stratasys. So I'm just reading, by the way, these are not my opinions. These it's, are just... It's certainly a no, no holds barred. Um, it is. The gloves are off. And, and so on that, there's another chart that just says, essentially, Nano Dimension has burned $500 million in the last two years to get $44 million in revenues. So, so that's the sub point there. The number four is don't be coerced to to tender your shares. And the point they make here is that if the tender offer is successful, where you hit the threshold of shares being tendered, shareholders who do not participate will have a four day mandatory window by which to tender their shares. So there is no risk of missing out. So therefore, don't feel like you have to tender their shares. That's an interesting tactic, by the way. I think that's an interesting point. And then the last point that they make against Nano on this uh, tender offer is Nano controlling Stratasys may create significant conflict of interest that potentially could lead Nano blocking value maximizing transactions for Stratasys to the detriment of the Stratasys minority shareholders. So, so that puts sort of where they are with Nano Dimension. So now we got to pivot over to the 3D system side for one second. So you you made it you made a comment about superior proposal. This is a defined term. Yeah. And this is an important term to talk about. So currently, as we talked about in the last uh, show, I'm probably the, I feel like the last three or four of these. Somebody needs to shoot us here. Um, I feel like it's getting repetitive. Stratasys has engaged into a merger agreement with Desktop Metal. So typically the legalese in these documents, once you sign, there are very few way outs of transactions. And I am guessing that what they put in is a defined term, right? There's usually things like material adverse changes or effects that occur. If something catastrophic happens, they have certain ways to to try to manage outs on those. But this is not one of those and would not qualify. So they have put into this agreement a superior proposal. We don't know what the definition of it is, but it's being quoted in every news article that you see. Mm, capitalized too. Yeah. It, it, so it, no, it's a defined term in and that quoted. Yeah. No, that's yeah. right. So, so we're, and, and by the way, on the Stratasys announcements this morning, they are saying they think it has, but they are not saying definitively that it has hit that, um, that, that criteria. So we're not all done here and there is still room that they may negotiate. This isn't, you know, renegotiate. So um, is there any more wiggle room? So we don't know where this is going to completely end up. And then there's a second piece of it where um, we're under the impression that there is a, a breakup fee between desktop metal and Stratasys. So if this hits the criteria of a superior proposal, there's still going to be a breakup fee, which sounds like 3D Systems willing to cover the cost of that. But yeah, let's not, let's, yeah, well, let's not forget or omit the fact that this could have a very catastrophic position for desktop metal. Mm-hmm. So if they lose this opportunity with Stratasys, how do they fund the company? We don't know the size and scope of that um, of that breakup fee. So, so there's a lot kind of sitting here hinging on this for the desktop metal group. And and I just don't believe in any of these that they're all done. So <laughs> that's, that's just that's just me speaking because I've been left at the altar on many a deals. And uh, right as you think uh, you're getting that thing done. 
So. Well, yeah, it, look, exactly. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, if this just keeps going, I mean, it's just more podcast fodder, right? Uh, <laughs> so so keep it going, guys. It's fine. But, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, look, the other thing here is that there is an activist investor in um, Stratasys who have written now two open letters. Um, the first was sort of saying, hey, listen, you know, we think that, you know, you are really not, doing appropriate diligence on these deals or taking them seriously or these offers um, and taking them seriously enough because they could um, represent a, a better a- outcome for Stratasys shareholders. And really, at the end of the day, that's what's driving all of this um, and should be driving all of this. Uh, Stratasys board has a has an obligation to their shareholders to do the best thing by their shareholders. And that's, that's, that's the end of the day. That's how it works. And so... Uh, they, they were saying, you know, listen, we've got real uh, scepticism regarding the strategic and financial merits of a DM merger, and we are really disappointed or upset that you've been refusing to negotiate and um, really court other offers seriously. Um, and one of the things that led to them writing this letter was a, a strategist filing on the SEC, um, and it, it had um, it, it was sort of hidden away there in all their other merger documents. But it had a huge amount of background on this merger with Desktop Metal. But in the background, it actually detailed all of the offers and all of the conversations that they've had over the last two years, of which there have been quite a number. Um, And it was made for really revealing reading. If you want to go look it up, it was, uh, I think, on the 20th of June that they published it. But basically what it says here, they had a total of 12 offers between, you know, desktop between 3D systems and nano dimension. So they've been courting offers for the last two years um, between these three parties. And the one that kicked it off actually was in January 17 of 2021 when 3D systems made an offer to acquire Stratasys for $47.28 per share. And then the funny thing is, is that they were, Stratasys were talking to desktop at the time and desktop then actually made an offer to acquire Stratasys for $60 a share. So my, how the tables have turned in that time, various different offers have ensued, including even Nano Dimension making an offer on desktop metal. Um, And uh, in the end, like I said, there was 12 um, acquisition proposals as of the 20th of June. And we know that that number has increased since then. Um, so Stratasys really has been courting these offers for quite some time. And the reason that these, uh, this filing was so revealing is because the, as far as the public was concerned, I mean, all we saw was that in, what was it, July or June of July last year was when uh, Nano Dimension made that purchase of 12% of Stratasys um, on the open market. And then Stratasys put in the poison pill. But there was active conversations going between 3D systems and desktop metal at the time. Um, And that poison pill was then what kicked off essentially like the next level of negotiations and everything sort of started to really shift then. And and as we know as well, um, you know, financial conditions through, through all of 2022 um, really took a good shakeup. So um, now we have what we're left with, with, which is, you know, Stratasys offering to acquire, um, desktop metal, but then 3D systems offering to acquire Stratasys and Nano Dimension. Let's see where they even end in this fallout. But the thing about them is that they have really healthy cash reserves. 
Um, and and there could definitely be a place for them in this. And they have also said in their latest offer um, that they would be willing to entertain the Stratasys 3D Systems merger and be a party to that. And so, hey, look, that honestly, you know, if they came to the table with their cash, um, it's it's not necessarily the worst thing, but um, obviously Stratasys is a very anti-entertaining uh, desktop metal. Uh, sorry, uh, nano dimension. Nano dimension. Yeah, no. Like I, th- I think with nano dimension, it, it's clear. I mean, desktop didn't take their deal earlier. They have cash. They just have not been successful at attracting the targets to be receptive to an approach. And the fact that they're willing to participate alongside of one of these transactions, any of them, um, it's probably at a necessity more than anything else. They traded a discount. So uh, one of the things, you know, if to think about this, why would anybody, you know, from the, from a merger standpoint, you look at it and you go, you know, what do you really get with Nano? Really, what probably is going to end up there is somebody's going to make an offer to buy them. You're going to basically buy their cash at a discount and you're going to gut the entire company because they're burning too much money. You're going to keep the residual kind of companies, operating companies that are there for the $44 million and just take that as a discount to cash. I think that's something I would expect to see downstream. But right, I mean that that cash just whittles away, and that's that's the problem, and that's why their shareholders are saying return our cash because the mm-hmm. best thing they could get right now is a return of their cash, and and that's not going to happen. But I think that's sort of what they're shooting for, and so I don't I don't think we're going to see a change with Nano Dimension, but I do think there is a growing support for a 3D system Stratasys deal uh, in the mix. That's going to leave desktop metal in a lurch if it does happen. Um, I, unless there's some really big payout on that breakup fee, I think that's just going to create an issue. So I think that's, um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll make comment. There was an unknown investment banker that made a comment that there, you know, that all of these deals should get done in some sequence is the only thing they're trying to figure out because this will be great for the industry. I think if you were sitting there as an investment banker getting a fee on every one of these transactions, it would be a great deal for you, for sure, by the way. I just don't want anybody here on this thing to go. If, it, if you take, if an investment banker tells you it's a good thing, ask them if they're getting paid on that yeah, deal or yeah. not. Follow um, the money. <laughs> I'm they're guessing, probably the way, not, not unbiased here. <laughs> by the way, JP Morgan is representing Stratus. So it may have been an unnamed JP Morgan banker said that deal. Um, yeah. Don't know. But because, um, you know, if I were working at JP Morgan representing Stratus, I'd probably be saying the same thing. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, take it with a grain of salt. Exactly. But but look, I, it, it does look increasingly likely that there's going to be this Stratus 3D systems combination it's 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 a little sad i know honestly there's something about the stratasys desktop metal deal that just felt you know like a little bit wholesome to me honestly like it, it was it was a nice home for desktop metal it was a nice exit for des- desktop uh, but it, I, it, look i think we already discussed it. it wasn't necessarily the best best deal for for stratasys shareholders no but I, you know in some ways uh, I, I say none of these deals are, are done until they're finished and Until funded and gone through the government approvals. Thanks, Coach Danny. <laughs> right. So no, I, I think that's something you have to think about here. And if you go back, I mean, Stratasys has declined multiple 3D systems offers in the past. Um, the fact that they're agreeing to engage in discussions and explore whether this is going to be by definition a superior proposal, I'm guessing they know what that threshold is and it probably um, gets them to that point. But they're not, they're not, at least from what I can see in today's announcement, they're not committing to that. And they probably use that as a renegotiation piece. 
So I'm not sure the board is 100% behind this and it's it, they're getting pressure from their activist shareholders. That's the, I don't think this story is over and we're going to end up uh, talking about this further. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we shall see. And um, yeah, can't wait to get Troy Jensen on to the next episode because, um, of course, he'll be joining us and uh, we'll be wrapping up quarter two uh, announcements and and also um, probably the latest and whatever is happening here. There are various things in train that are still yet to happen um, with with all of these players. Um, There's a number of court cases that are still yet unresolved that could have a significant outcome, uh, significant bearing on the outcome. Um, and also that poison pill expires with nanodimension. So there, there's still a lot of things over the next month or two that are going to um, make a, a pretty big difference in whatever happens here, I would say. All right. Well, listen, Danny, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great great to, to chat as always. Um, I did note, Danny, that you said just the other day that we have secured the shoes for form next. So, you know, thank goodness for that. We're Um, working on it. We're working (laughs) on it. Um, And so uh, thanks again, Alex. I'll work, I'll get your shoe size here pretty soon. And a big thanks to our producer, Jake, who's been patient with us. All right. Thanks very much. This is the July episode of Printing Money. You've been listening to Printing Money. The insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. For more information about what you just listened to or for past episodes, visit www.3dprint.com.